back when there were some issues between Pixar and Disney, there's a little tidbit there where Disney was like, okay, fine, we're gonna make our own stuff. I believe I've alluded to this before, where they made the Circle 7 animation group. Circle 7 animation was like, okay, we need to start working on Toy Story 3. And they bounced around a few ideas. My personal favorite is the one where uh, there was a big toy recall uh, in Taiwan, I believe, for Buzz. It's like, okay, we got to take him back. But no, no, he's malfunctioning, and they're going to tear him apart. We've got to save him. That sounds kind of cool. But when things finally devolved back to, you know, being under the Pixar label, Pixar was like, yeah, we're not even reading that. <laughs> oh, no, not as an insult thing. At least that's what they say. Instead, they state that it was because they wanted to walk in with a fresh start, you know, not actually having any... Uh, preconceptions about what they were going to work on. Okay, I can believe that. Lee Unkridge, had to look up how to pronounce that one, because I kept wanting to say Unkrich or Unkrich, but it's actually Unkridge. All three of those probably sound the same. Anyways, Lee Unkridge was the person who ended up working on this one. Now, this was kind of an interesting choice. He's been with Pixar since the beginning. Uh, well, let me walk that back. He's been with Pixar since Toy Story 1, which, as we've already discussed, is not actually the beginning. And so he obviously has the pedigree and the skill with the animation. And Lord knows the studio really likes to push the animation element. But he was told, all right, you get to work on Toy Story 3. And his response was something along the lines of... In fact, he was flat out stating that he was worried that this was going to be the dud. In fact, that was a really regular, common topic at about this point in history. By the time this movie came out, I was doing better financially. I had already had the, uh, the network engineering job that has mentioned it a few times, you know, where I kind of started this job. And things were doing better. So, you know, being cognizant of and actually staying part of the movie-going community was something I could actually do at this point. And, yeah, most people were thinking at some point Pixar is going to bomb, right? I mean, they can't just keep making good movies. And as I've already said, different people tend to have different opinions on when Pixar descended, as I pointed out already back in Cars. As always, curious of your thoughts when that is. I don't think this one qualifies, though. I mean, you, you can say that if you want. That, that's your opinion, and you're certainly uh, you know, entitled to it. But I, I can't imagine people saying that this is when Pixar quality nosedived. Here, with Toy Story 3. You remember how I mentioned how there were three films I considered to be my top three Pixar, and I kept not mentioning the third one? Here it is. Toy Story 3 is really good. It has its flaws, but ooh, this thing just nails it for the most part. But I'm getting a little bit off topic. The reason I bring this up, though, is Mr. Unkridge, he was terrified that he was going to be the one to not only make that happen, which at this point in time was something that was happening in the studio, too. People keep thinking, at some point we're going to make a bad film. At some point that's going to happen. Certain studio executives above the animation department were also kind of waiting for that to happen because office politics? Not Iger. He's, he's above that. I'm talking below that. But why would Iger want his investment to fail? After all, he's interested in the money. But no, there was a, a lot of worry that at some point Pixar was going to push out a bomb. We, I, I know, having uh, researched several interviews, I know when Pixar considers the bomb when they consider their descent happens. We're not there yet. I'll point it out when we get there. But he was worried this was going to be it. And it was going to be a bad sequel. You know, oh God, I have to make a sequel to Toy Story, the most beloved and most iconic of our franchises. And I'm going to make, oh God, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. Oh God, what do I do? What do I do? Freak out. It's also interesting that there's a big gap here. 
Toy Story and Toy Story 2 relatively close to each other. Toy Story 3 is 11 years later. In universe, but also in real life. It's been a little bit. And a lot of things have changed. And a lot of tech has changed. Now, this is funny because you might look at the bill for this film, which is $200 million, and think, God, why did they spend so much on this one? Well, they had to make the models from scratch. There were issues with the old files, which just made them non-editable. I haven't been able to find more detail on that, and given that I do actually have a lot of graphics experience, that is graphics editing and design experience, not 3D level, I'll go ahead and admit, I'm more on the 2D side of things. I'm not sure what would make a file like that uneditable. Anybody who actually knows 3D modeling and rendering, please feel free to jump in on this and share your thoughts on why that was a thing. But whatever the reason, the result was they had to start from scratch. Now, when I say from scratch, obviously I don't mean that, because they they did have the pre-existing models that they could render them off of. They had the comparison. It's like it's like the proper remake thing for a video game, right? You're, you're effectively making a new game, but you do have a blueprint for it, so you don't have to invent everything whole cloth. You do have something to base it off of. Similar concept. Still, that bloated out the development time and the development budget significantly. Oh, jeez. I sure hope we're going to be able to actually make this film work, and then it sold for over a billion dollars. This is the first one to cross the B mark, and actually manage to really smash records. There's something appropriate about that, because in many ways Toy Story 3 has been compared to another film that would actually be coming out a couple years after, Avengers. You know, the first Avengers film. And both managed similar traits in similar manners for similar reasons. <laughs> you know, creative staff given leeway, sequel to pre-existing franchise by a beloved company that was doing very well at the time, and managed to subvert all expectations and nevertheless not only produce a quality product, but one that actually exceeded expectations and absolutely crushed the box office. You can kind of see the parallels here. In point in fact, there are three really big spikes in income when it comes to the Pixar series. There's arguably a fourth, but we're not there yet, so I'm just going to leave that one for now. Spike number one is, you know, Toy Story, the original. Spike number two is Finding Nemo. Spike number three is Toy Story 3, appropriately. So, with that all out of the way, don't actually have a lot of behind the scenes this time, but that's okay, because we have a lot to discuss with this one. This is probably my favorite intro of the Toy Story films. I kind of wish we had more of these. Just the imagination sequences, where they just play with it as if it is a cartoon, and it's obvious that what you're seeing is a kid's imagination kind of a deal. No, I don't mean like the Lego movie. The Lego movie's kind of different. I mean, like, the beginning of this film. Maybe not a whole film of it, just some more shorts of these. I don't know, I love rewatching the intro to this film. Oh yeah, I should mention I've rewatched Toy Story 3 a lot. This might be my most rewatched Pixar film. The only other one that really contests it is Wally and Incredibles, the top three, as I just mentioned. I'm curious if anything will surpass that. We still have seven films I haven't seen coming up, including the next one, sort of. We'll get there. All right. Imagination is awesome, and clearly, you know, he's he's got some new toys, he's got some new kit. Y you, um, you're still going back to the force field dogs and the dinosaurs that eat force field dogs, though. I, I guess there's something to be said for the classics. I love the the ham ship, by the way. If you remember all the way back in Toy Story 2, I mentioned how they had started working with particles. If you remember in Monsters, Inc., I pointed out how they had actually started getting pretty good at working with particles. 
That leads us to here. Actually, the particles things have been showing up in almost every film since, but here they go absolutely crazy in two separate scenes with particles. One is the trash heap with all the shredded trash where there are hundreds of thousands of independent particles being rendered there. The other is at the beginning when they do the monkey bomb and there's just a sea of these red monkeys pouring out by the absolute ridiculous amount. It's insane. Now, the fi this is all neat. It's good. It's feel good. Enjoyable. It's also foreshadowing. They're doomed. They're being held down and there's no way they can escape. And the film sh bothers to show them accepting that and flinching away from their fate, like, okay. And then it cuts back to, you know, that him, and he's like, ah, oh, quick, shine your light over here, and then they escape miraculously. Keep that in mind. All right, so this is when we, the, uh, we see the montage. We see some of the 11 years past. Not all of it, because obviously doing independent models for each year as they're going up is kind of insane. But instead, we get to the end. It's like, okay, we've got to be found. We've got to be found. We've got to be played with. And by that point, it had been years since they'd actually been played with. Yeah. I don't know how toys perceive time, but I, I, I wouldn't want to interact with that. Considering the events of this movie occur over, what, two days, I think? It's a, it's, I think it's three days, actually. Very small period of time. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be in their case. Toy bin. Whatever. So they try the trick with the phone to get him to do it. Nope. This then uh, circles around that continue central pillar, the core theme of the Toy Story series. Call me weird, but I do like how it continues to be the core theme of the franchise. It even shows up in Toy Story 4. Toys want to be played with. You know, it is their central purpose. I hate to keep repeating it, but at the same time, it keeps being repeated and being used to different and good effect. It also helps to emphasize a point later, which I'll get to. And this time I'm not going to forget. I'm going to write it down right now. Just to make sure I don't forget this time. Uh, so they talk about, you know, it's okay. We'll make it through. What about what happened to Bo Peep? Ouch. I'll talk more about that incident in Toy Story 4, but it is kind of cool that they have that little tidbit there. This also, of course, leads to uh, them mentioning that Christmas decorations are people they can interact with. I think we're really starting to blur exactly what a toy is if Christmas decorations are capable of coming to life and being like, hi. I mean, there's some pretty fancy ones. And then, you know, there's porcelain. But then again, if you think about the complexity, or rather lack of complexity of some of these toys, like, say, Squeaker, okay, yeah, sure. My suspense is already willingly smashed through the window, which is over there this time. So, you know, okay, fine, you win. It does make me wonder, though, where the line actually is with regards to what is sentient and sapient. After all, in the next film, there's going to be a freaking spork that qualifies. Anywho. <clears throat> so, or is it a spoon? I don't actually remember. Moving on. Woody, <laughs> they talk about, oh, let's see how much we're worth on eBay. Woody's probably worth a decent amount. As I mentioned back in Toy Story 2, he probably tops the $2,000 range. So, you know, they, they probably can make some. But, of course, he's the one they won't do. And this leads to the misunderstanding. It's the first thing about this film I don't like. Now, Andy has obviously got a lot on his mind, and he's going to college, and he's probably stressed in ways he doesn't actually understand yet. Trust me, I've been there. I'm sure several of you have, too. 
And so he's just kind of like, eh, whatever, whatever, whatever. Oh yeah, I should, I should actually, uh, hmm. Looks at the toy bin. Grabs Woody to take Woody with him to college. I do like how that's just a brief little decision for him because of course he's going to take Woody with him to college. I thought about bringing him out for this, but I, there's reasons I'm not. Uh, I have a toy. It's actually a stuffed animal. It's more stuffed animals for me, as you can probably see, than toys. But um, his name's Big Boss. No relation to Metal Gear. He's act- He actually predates Metal Gear because he's as old as I am. Um, he was given to me the day I was born by my grandmother, by Grandma Laura. And I still have him. He is in very careful, protected care right now, which is why I was hesitant to bring him out. Because I've been taking very careful care of him until he can be properly refurbished, which is hard to do for, for you know, a, a stuffed animal that's 39 years old. So, <laughs> I bring this up, though, because he's been with me uh, forever, right? Like, he's always come with me, except when I lived in the ditch. He was actually with Mum at that point in time. Lore Mum. And... I only point that out because how many of you have a similar thing? It doesn't matter what it is, and you don't even have to tell me. I'm just curious. How many of you have a thing that you've just kept with you for forever because that's yours and that's your thing and there's a significance and relevance and personal power to whatever it is that enables you to not only keep it going but to still have some positive impact from it, either from nostalgia or memories or from current things. Like maybe it's something you still enjoy, you know? I mean, I, I could be a weirdo, but to, to use another example, this Star Destroyer right here, this is the Hammer. My dad and I made this uh, when I was in, this would have been 7th or 8th grade. 6th, 7th, or 8th. It's one of those three, because I know where I was living at that point in time. I could point out on the map the subway we were staying at. It was very empty. Dad was coming up to visit, and um, we just stayed in that subway and put this model together. And if you're wondering why there's no bridge, even as a kid, I thought the bridge thing was stupid on the Star Destroyers. So, (laughs) I still like seeing that there. I still like knowing that it's still in one piece and still working. You can kind of see the glue. You know, it's, it's not exactly the best model. But who cares? I built that thing, and it looks cool, and it's the hammer, right? Like, you, you get it. You get it. There's a significance there that allows for even modern enjoyment for these kind of things. I'm, I'm really hammering this point in using personal examples, not just because that's my overall style and approach, but because I really want to make this point clear, because the movie really wants to make this point clear, that there is a significance and power to these moments and these things from our past, right? We'll come back to that. We will, I swear. So, um, Woody does that. So the whole, so, okay. So then he starts, you know, he decides to put Woody in the college box. He puts everyone else in a trash bag. This is, this is the first part of the movie that irritates me. First of all, the fact that he decides to use the trash bag. And second of all, that he is interrupted before he manages to put the bag up into the attic. And third of all, that the attic just kind of closes so that fourth of all, his mother can stumble into it. And fifth of all, the garbage truck's coming right then, so there's no way to stop it. You get the idea. Now, he obviously does not want to throw away these toys. Despite whatever he may say, he still has an attachment to them. And I've already given my reasonings and showcasing for why that is. So, the entire movie hinges on this. The whole thing. None of this would have happened if not for this stumble, 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 stumble. Okay, you know what? I'm willing to accept a lot of long shots. I mean, I like Star Wars, for God's sakes. So... I'm going to go ahead and let this go. But that leads me immediately into irritation point number two. Now, it wasn't as often as I thought. But four 
separate and distinct times, Woody tells them, no, you've got to believe me. They weren't actually putting you in the attic. And their response is, no, we don't believe you. I don't like Cassandra Truths in general, but you'd think Woody, especially by this point, would have earned their trust and respect enough that they would freaking listen to him instead of just being like, nah, and buzzing him off. Really? And again, this is the other element that drives the plot, because they insist on the fact that they were thrown away, which is why they don't just get back into the room, which is why they get taken to the daycare. Now, I know, I know, as a plot writer, you need to get from point A to point B. I do get that. You could have made this happen in a completely different manner, though. Imagine this for a moment. Imagine Andy's getting set to go. And his mother gives him an ultimatum. You need to decide what toys are going with you to college. Everything else is going into the attic. And so he's like, fine. He grabs Woody, puts him in the college thing, goes to leave. Mother comes in later. And, you know, they have a moment of, oh, gosh, attic. Oh, it'll be okay. We'll figure it out. We've got the TV up there. We've got the other people. It'll work out. Okay, cool, cool. Oh, hang on. Places. Kunk. She comes back in, looks in the attic box, says, you know, he never plays with these. And then, and then she just hesitates for a second as she's looking at that. And then she scribbles something on the side of the box, carries it out, and takes it into the car. And everyone's like, why are we in the car? Camera pulls back, and we see the word uh, you know, daycare or Sunnydale or something to indicate that this is now a donation box. And Woody, of course, is like, oh, God, I've got to save you. Quick, we've got to get out of here. And they're like, I don't know. And then you could have the hesitance. And then the car door shuts, and then we go to Sunnydale, and everything's smooth. I know this sounds like a weird thing to nitpick, but in what is otherwise a fantastic film, these two plot points just actually irritate me. Anyways, Woody mentions that he knows daycare. Huh. I, I wonder if he is making that up or if he is just remembering, because remember, he's from the freaking 50s. <laughs> so it's entirely possible that he really does have memories of daycare. They hint at Woody's past several times, never really go into it. Um, then there's Bonnie, just shows up really quick. And then we see the butterfly room. Okay, 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 okay. Fangasm moment. The level of detail. I, I can't even imagine how many teams spent how much time designing this wide shot, this establishing shot of the butterfly room. Now, it is purely technically impressive. It is horrifically, beautifully, wonderfully, terrifyingly impressive. I The thing is, though, it's not even a waste from a narrative perspective. While Pixar films have essentially always been animation first, story second, which I'm fine with. That's effectively the same as gameplay first, story second, to use a video game parallel. But in this case, this does serve a narrative point. It shows how beautific this is. I'm going to pause right now and mention The Afterlife. I've heard several people say that this film was inspired by, slash, intended to parallel The Afterlife. We have Heaven, that's the butterfly room. We have uh, Purgatory, slash, you know, going your way down to hell. That's the caterpillar room. And then we have Actual Hell, which is when they're, they're taken to the dump and thrown into the fires. And immediately after they get out of hell is when the, the sun is rising and symbolism is symbolism. Personally, I don't buy any of that. I don't. The exact same symbolism and utilization of each of these scenes doesn't... It works regardless of whether it is specifically implying or being allegorical to an afterlife or not. 
It's just a really nice place. A not-so-nice place. Haha. And then the place where they go to freaking die. And as they get out, the sun is rising because they're out of time. Because they need to get home. And, of course, now they have finished their journey and they've concluded you know, the big actual thematic point we'll get to later and blah, 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 blah. So you can go for that if you want to. No judgment whatsoever. I just don't think it really applies any more than it doesn't apply. So flip a coin. Anyways, so we have this paradise. Uh, <laughs> they're so happy at new, po- at new toys showing up. Now, obviously, this is part of the trick, but do you think they're genuinely happy to see new toys? Or do you think they're genuinely happy to see new fodder? Because if they don't get a new selection of toys, some of the elites need to get kicked down to the Caterpillar Room. This place is horrifically cynical and beautifully crafted. The last time I've been able to comment on a tyranny through fear of this level was back in a bug's life. Wait a second. Pixar? Oh my god, they're going to take over. No, but in all, serious, in all seriousness, this is uh, this is messed up. I'll talk more about it in just a second, but wow. Anyways, um, the, uh, let me rewind a second. Before we start talking about the horrificness of this play care, question. Do you think that being played with by these toys constitutes paradise for these toys. Now, let me explain why I'm saying that. This is one of those arguments that has no right answer. It's just a matter of opinion. And I always tend to like those. So I will, as always, ask your opinion. Uh, Let me use a romantic example, okay? Let's say you could meet the one person that really, truly fits you. You both, and you fit them, obviously. True Tetrising. Once in a once in a bigrillion lifetime, true love, awesome, gonna last forever, amazingness, okay? Let's say that instead of that, you get to have enjoyable, uh, fun, meaningless, I, I hate to use that word, let's walk that back, um, brief, let's go with that, brief encounters with people regularly, forever. Like you just, you, you get to, you get to do the dating scene and it never gets old. And the, it's important that in both cases, these are positive scenarios. In other words, it's not like, you know, do you have happiness or not? It's more like, do you have one type of happiness or another type of happiness? Which would you pick? Which is superior? Now, I personally think that's up to the individual to pick. And you can see how this applies in manners other than the romantic one. And you can see how it directly applies to Toy Story 3. Would it be better to have a kid, or would it be better to have an endless supply of different children who are not your kid, and you are not their toy, but you'll keep being played with? You'll keep having that core purpose and function satisfied. It will be enjoyable. It will be a good life. Both of them would be good lives. lives. And that's the point. This also admittedly ties into something that the, the, the film centralizes as a theme, but I don't want to cover that just yet. <laughs> this, <laughs> um, so, uh, there's a brief scene where he shows off the nice area. The, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer to this as the elite status several times. Because the people towards the top, the people in the butterfly room who have all the nice stuff there, 
they have massages and replacement parts and batteries. You know, it's, 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 it, they're well taken care of. You could also call them the aristocracy and it would appro- work almost appropriately as well. But either way, they point out and they make a point of just showing how awesome it is. This is true in universe and out. Out of universe, it's to help sell things, but in universe, this is his sales pitch. This was done as a joke in Paper Mario 2, where you're joining this Colosseum in Chapter 3. Forgive me for those of you who know the game. And as you're going through, you, you get shown the Champion's Room, which is this really nice, lush, amazing place. Then you get shown the Upper Class Room, the Elite Room, which is you know well-designed and clean and functional. Then you get shown where you're going, and that's the Dreg's Room. It's motivation. This is a very common thing, even in you know pyramid schemes that aren't horrifically evil. It is designed to try and motivate you to want to, to move up the ranks. And, well, material motivation is one of the easiest and simplest ways of trying to motivate anybody. You can motivate an animal with material motivations, never mind a person. So, <clears throat> there you go. You can have access to all this wonderful, amazing stuff if you move up the ranks. Just keep that in mind. Now, there's a this scene kind of takes its time, but there's several bits of foreshadowing as they're going through, trying to figure out what exactly is going on here. And uh, Woody ends up leaving. Notice he automatically assumes Buzz is coming with, by the way. That was a nice touch. And, you know, it's, it's a bad ending, but whatever. He's got to go. The kids are coming back. And then the kids come back, and it's nightmarish hell. Question. Is it? I, I know that sounds like the weirdest thing to bring up, but kids play with toys. Andy played with toys. He was rough. I mean, he would knock... Look at the beginning of Toy Story 1 and the beginning of Toy Story 3. In both cases, there was a lot of knocking over or flinging across the room or whatever because he's playing with his toys. Now, you could argue that this is above and beyond that. Sure. But I just I find it strange that this is shown as universally bad. Maybe it's because they haven't been played with for so long, but no, that would probably make them more tolerant than not. Maybe it's the fact that they're more used to Andy's playstyle. Yeah, maybe, except the film again shows this as universally bad. All the other toys, who are used to this, also don't like it. And all of the toys in the whole daycare hate this and try to avoid Caterpillar duty whenever they can. Even when things are made better in the credit sequence, that's still something they do. So why? Now, obviously this is because plot, but the closest thing I came up to with an explanation here is the idea that age range, right? Now, even this falls short, because if you look at some of the toys that are Andy's toys, they're pretty low tier and they're pretty low age range, which means they would be considered acceptable to be played with by these kids. Now, Buzz Lightyear probably would not qualify in that, but several of the others would. Ironically, the one toy here that probably least qualifies for being within this play area is Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head. It's a lot of small parts that could be accidentally swallowed, and that is absolutely a threat in this particular age range, so someone should probably do something about that. Anyways. So, that's horrible. Cool. Ken is shown to have a redeeming trait... I'll give them this. Ken is a surprisingly complex character, because he's not a good guy. But, well, he's not a bad guy either. He's just a dude who is in the middle of a horrific 
tyrannical dictatorship, which, if you've seen A Bug's Life, probably sounds familiar. So while he is seen in a sympathetic light, it does not make him a good person. Quite the contrary. It just it actually makes him more culpable in several ways because he goes along with it despite knowing that it's wrong and despite not wanting it to keep going on as is. This is uh, when the film really starts to show its chops again uh, in the same tricks that they used both in Finding Nemo and in WALL-E. The bouncing camera. No, I don't mean the camera literally bounce. What I mean by that is that they have uh, the camera... I don't know why I call it. That's a dumb phrase. It, it bounces back and forth between perspectives. Perspectives shift between different party members. And, and with the camera moving like this, we have more interesting storytelling that allows for less padding and allows the, the, the pacing of the film to move forward more swiftly and smoothly because anytime you have the end of a scene, you don't have to think about what happens next exactly. You don't have to show what happens next exactly. You don't have to cut to, you know, three days later and you don't have to have a montage. You just cut to the other side of what's going on and keep the action going. And thus, the pacing of the film keeps going in a nice, smooth beat. By the way, it's a good time to mention that John Morris actually came back, along with Eric Von Detter, to voice uh, both Andy and Sid. Both actors had quit acting at, the, at this point and were actually asked to come back specifically for this work. And obviously it's been 11 years, so they naturally sound older. Nice touch. Let's talk about Lotso's scheme. This is messed up. I've had occasion to talk about uh, pyramid schemes of power maintenance uh, multiple times in my career, always with regards to fiction. The one I will always remember the most is Telltale Minecraft Season 2. I know, that's a weird one to pick out, but if you've seen the, the run, or if you've played the game, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm actually not even going to spoil it. It's just one of the more messed up power pyramid schemes that I've seen, and it is... Ugh. In this case... New toys come in. New toys are associated to the Caterpillar Room, not only as fodder, but to maintain the status of the elite. Because the elite are not the elite unless they have something better than everyone else. Otherwise, they'd just be part of the same group. If everyone's elite, no one is, right? Incredibles reference. We're walking, we're walking. So, the elite get the benefit of the Butterfly Room. This helps to maintain the power structure. Only if you're good, only if you do as you're told, only if you're part of the system, do you get all these benefits. If you're not, you go back to the Caterpillar Room. It is implied that toys get cycled out into the Caterpillar Room if they don't have any new fodder to go in there. It is also implied that the toys are broken and tossed regularly from the Caterpillar Room. If you, you know, step out of line, you do something wrong, you question the boss, over to the Caterpillar Room. So we have detriment for, for, this is literally carrot and the stick. You know, you, you, you do good, you get rewarded. You do badly, you get punished. Um, what's really funny here though, we see him pull this with buzz, right? This also implies some of Lotso's tactics because a new group of toys will come in and he'll try to identify one or two or three or however many that he thinks has promise, and he will try to convince that individual, or those groups, to side with him. Now, this has multiple benefits. Psychologically speaking, if new people coming in who've never even heard of Lotso still agree with him and his mentality, 
then there's kind of that tacit uh, implication that what he's doing is acceptable. That other toys will find his methods more acceptable since brand new toys accepted it. After the psychological tint, there's also the fact that he now gets new enforcers, new groups of individuals that he can then use in order to maintain this system. If you pay attention during the escape sequence later, he has a fairly large network of toys whose entire job it is simply to prevent, to maintain the power structure and to prevent other toys from fleeing. Oh yeah, why doesn't he just let toys leave? Because if he let toys leave, his power would vanish. If if nobody wants to be in the Caterpillar room and all the Caterpillar toys flee, well, then that's not a punishment at that point, is it? And anyone new sentenced can just leave. Oh, you don't want to be in the Caterpillar room. You can just go then. And banishment doesn't quite mean, mean the same things under these circumstances. The, the equivalent of banishment is sending them to the Caterpillar room. That's why he has to maintain that hold on the toys who are there so harshly. Because otherwise, all of his power evaporates if he cannot enforce it. Sense make? This is messed, by the way. This is really messed up. Um, so, uh, I, I mentioned the psychological benefit of getting new people. I mentioned how he gets a new enforcer. But the, the last part, this is probably the most messed up aspect of this. And this is, this is why I was reminded of Telltale Walk, uh, not talking to Telltale Minecraft Season 2. The people on the bottom are told repeatedly, in two times in this film, he mentions it directly, you got to work your way up. It's a pyramid, right? And so he's already mentioned the motives. He's already shown the, the, the goal, right? You can work your way up to that, as I already talked about. But by showing that at least one of their number has already accepted his status, he has now proven that toys can move up. Buzz was allowed to be there for one night, and or one day, and it's like, okay, now that you've experienced that, why don't you come and join my crew over in the Elite's area, over in the Butterfly Room? Yeah? Yeah, it's, it's much nicer over here. You know, the rest of you, if you decide to work with things, if you decide to go with the system, you could get this too. Thus, he proves, quote-unquote, that it is possible to move up. He demonstrates what you can get, he demonstrates what the penalty is. He demonstrates that you can move up the system. Motive, motive, motive. This is insidiously brilliant. It's not even that, that, that complex. It is actually quite simple. But it is so effective. And we can see this throughout the course of the film. There are multiple points. They're pretty subtle. Most of them show up during the big confrontation with lots of the, the garbage bin. But there are a few points when several of the other people working for him clearly aren't really 100% into this. They're just kind of going along with it because this is the system. Ken himself is the biggest pit bit here where he mentions, you know, we've got a thing. There's a way things go and you've got to do what I tell you because that, that's just how things work here, Right. It's clear that not everyone is particularly into this system. And why would they be? Most people living in brutal, tyrannical, you know, fear-mongering systems don't actually want to be. But because they don't want to be kicked down the rung, they continue to enforce the system to maintain their position on the ladder. Yeah. And Ken is probably the most overt example of that. Because, again, to center the focus on him for just a second... If Ken had his way, none of this would be a thing. Not only does he say this outright, but later on he and Barbie effectively take over the daycare and prove this right by trying to renovate the system and come up with a new system. 
So he does not want this. He demonstrably and provably does not want this system to function. But he goes along with it and actively, willingly enforces it for fear of being kicked back down that rung. That is the true crime of these kind of things. This is right up there with the Cardassian Union back in uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, to use probably one of the most talked about examples I've talked about of this type of circumstance. A system that is deliberately built to ensure that its victims are the people who are enforcing it. And vice versa, the enforcers are victims of the system. <sighs> so... Uh, sorry, I've, I've just ran through a lot of thoughts. I, I, I've wanted to talk about Toy Story 3 for a while. Some of you may remember I did a rumination on Zootopia. This is several years ago. And it was specifically a request to talk about a film I wanted to talk about. And I leapt on that because there were so many things I wanted to talk about in Zootopia. And that's actually one of my favorite ruminations, so I hope I at least partially succeeded on that. Toy Story 3 is another one of those films for me. Uh, along with The Incredibles, obviously. And I was really torn between The Incredibles and Toy Story 3 for last year's rumination, because that was another, you know, you get to pick lore. And uh, I, I apologize. Like I said, I've been wanting to talk about this film for years. Let's let's move on. Let's move on. <clears throat> so, we... Uh... <laughs> we get Lotso's backstory at this point. And we, we, the film goes out of its way to not only show, but tell the kind of pyramid scheme Lotso has going on here. I know that they said that Ratatouille was designed for adults. I think this one was. Of all of the Pixar films I've seen so far, there are, I would say, uh, three. I, I kept arguing with myself, but I kept losing the argument. There are three that I would say are decisively aimed at adults. And those are... The Incredibles, Wally, and Toy Story 3. Please ignore the fact that these are my three favorite Pixar films for a second. That's why I was arguing against myself. I do, I stand by the statement though. I think these are, while they're enjoyable for kids, and I can prove that because my niece likes all three of these films, they are more aimed at adults, I think. And it's the topics like these that really help to flesh those out. Again, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this so much. What's another one of those topics? Here's an adult topic for you, a mature topic. I don't like to use the word mature because most people misuse that word. So if you ever see me say adult, that's what I mean. Some of us go through hell, and that sucks. I hope nobody, nobody watching this video right now has gone through hell. I really do. I have. More than once. And it's it was horrific and terrible and awful. But I, as I was going through it, I kind of developed a theory. And that theory is something that I think has been proven in my real life experience with myself and observations of others. And then after doing, after coming up with that theory, I started to notice this theory in being present, present in fiction. The theory is that you go through hell and what comes out at the other end is either the best of yourself or the worst of yourself, or you're just completely broken, which is also a possibility. We'll talk about that when we get to enterprise season three. So, in some cases, we go through these things and we try to be a better person. We try to, you know, exemplify what we consider our good traits. And in other cases, we are Lotso. Lotso is a definitive example of this. He goes through a hell and he is abandoned and he has lost his kid. And within seconds, 
he has completely gotten worse in effectively every way. He even insists that the other toys were abandoned even though they weren't, and then tries to use them to enforce his mindset. And when he sees the daycare, he just moves in and takes over and builds the horrible pyramid we've already talked about. Yeah. Um... I, I guess we'll talk about Lotso here. Lotso... Lotso's motivation is the hardest thing to pin down for me. And you might be thinking, Lore, he runs the daycare, he gets his power. The more I've seen this film, and again, I've seen this film more than once, the more I disagree with that sentence. I think that Lotso certainly has a selfish streak, but what he tends to have more than that is a little bit of a nihilist streak. And I know I'm slightly misusing that word here, but his line... Um, oh, what did he, I wrote it down, I wrote it down. Uh, all we are, all we are is trash, waiting to be thrown away. That's all a toy is. He says that in anger, but I think that says a lot for his actual mentality and how he actually thinks about things. Maybe I'm thinking this way because just a few, uh, about a week ago from my perspective, I covered Pirates of the Caribbean 3. And in that film, and in Pirates of the Caribbean 2, small uh, spoilers, Davy Jones is actively cruel, petty, and spiteful because he himself was so hurt and thus was so twisted by that hurt that he wants to spread that misery as far as he can. That is effectively Davy Jones's motivation. Screw you. And you see the parallel here. I think Lotso is completely broken. Not in the manner I mentioned earlier. Rather, remember that central point of all the Toy Story films. We're toys we want to be played with. We want to add that joy to people, right? Lotso is yet another examination of that. Someone who that core desire was cracked and twisted and warped until it just didn't recognize, it's nothing recognizable anymore. And now all that's left is his horrific desire to ensure that other toys feel the pain he did and are distanced from the very circumstances that might allow them to be freed, to think any way other than he thinks. You, now, I, I said before that I meant no negatives with the question, I meant it, but in this film it's made very clear, if you have a kid, it's better than just being at the daycare with lots of other kids. That is clearly something the film itself pushes as an idea. Now, that could be debated, like I said earlier, and that's why I paused to, to ask that question earlier. But he ensures a circumstance that no one else out there can ever have a kid. That they can't have that. It's gone. You don't get that. I didn't get that. Why should you? Why should you be able to have that kind of fulfillment and satisfaction and long-term enjoyment? This is how the film trips in one minor way, I think. Because as I said, I don't think the all the dates versus the one true love thing, I don't think either of those is inherently superior as long as the, the status is maintained throughout both. But for Lotso, it's clear that he is actively trying to prevent the latter by using the former because screw you, because spite. This, uh... Ugh. Yeah, Lotso is a disturbing individual and might be the most evil villain we've seen so far. 
What do you think? I know, I'm pretty sure I've asked this question before because I asked it about Hopper. The only other villain I could think of who is as bad as uh, Lotso so far of the films we've covered so far is Hopper. What do you think? Nevertheless, I want to make it clear, unlike many Pixar villains, including Ken in this very one, I don't feel even a shred of sympathy for Lotso. Not one. This is a despicable person. Again, who has been given every opportunity to improve or to better themselves or to start a new life, and at every chance has consistently been worse, been awful, been terrible, and decided not to move on from that wound that they carry with them. I suppose I should go ahead and start talking about themes. I've already jumped away from my notes so badly here. What am I missing here? Uh, the escape sequence. Eh, we'll get to that. The you know, let's let's save the themes, shall we? Just for a little bit, okay? So you notice how a a lot of the toys all participate in the overall scheme because they get benefits from it and because they don't want to get the detriments from not participating. But I bring this up because even despite all of that support, you'll notice that he relies heavily on Big Baby. Big Baby is is his dragon. It's the, the enforcer, which, of course, as just about any villain will tell you, you need to make sure you have the loyalty of that enforcer, which is a mistake lots of ways. It's actually arguably the first mistake he makes in the whole film. The other one is the monkey. We don't actually learn why the monkey's so loyal, but the monkey's really loyal and very terrifying for some reason. They do also have the Galactic Empire problem. For those of you not familiar with Star Wars EU history, this is kind of in the AU, but mostly in the EU. The fact is that the Galactic Empire is huge and vast and powerful, but also has all this territory, and they have to protect all of it. They need response posts, and they need reaction times. The rebels get to decide when and where the actions happen. This is related to Rogue One. The fact that the rebels were able to decide to attack here means the Empire has to decide to react to defending there. Because you can't evenly defend everywhere. It just doesn't work that way. Unless you have ridiculous levels of resources and manpower, right? Same problem here. For all his support, and he does have quite a few toys enforcing his rule, Lotso can't actually defend every single part of the playground simultaneously. So he has key points. You know, a specific uh, bottlenecks, effectively, where he has individuals trying to protect and maintain and defend. And, well, that's one of the things that the team does, is they poke at that by poking over here and then poking over here, and then these people can go about their business. Now, this isn't a heist movie, obviously. But one thing that heists, in general, have uh, very much in common, I actually brought this up over on Star Trek DS9's episode, Bada Bing, Bada Bang, is there are two general ways to approach it. Way number one, tell the audience the plan. That way, well, you can play with that. You can either show that that wasn't the plan all along, or you can show the plan going wrong, and then show how the audience, or show the audience how the characters adapt to the plan going wrong, right? Option two is to not tell the audience the plan, and then just kind of have the audience enjoy the plan as it's being presented. Both of these are valid re- approaches, and both of them have their own benefits and detriments. In this case, we go with the latter, where they ha- where they don't exposit the plan, and instead we just kind of see as they go through it. It's a really good sequence, and it has excellent storyboarding, and excellent design, and great animation, and I don't have much to share about it other than just tons and tons of praise, plus to story, and plus to gameplay, because of the animation. Uh, this is also when we see Mr. Tortilla Head, 
What? <laughs> I mean, I know these toys are literally magic, but... Okay, okay I'm, I'm just gonna walk. I'm just gonna walk on. After all, Mrs. Potato Head's eye works from a distance of who knows how long. Like half a mile? I don't know. They, they never say exactly how far it is. It can't be that far. The drive didn't take that long, but still. <laughs> sure. <clears throat> just, just gonna let it go. Um, excellent pacing, as usual. We also lead to Mr. Cucumberhead. <laughs> I'm surprised. I looked it up. They have not made a Mr. Cucumberhead toy, or at least not that I've seen. I am astonished they've never done that. People have made their own. This leads to the first problem in the plan. The bird that at that directly directly leads to Mr. Cucumberhead. Second problem is Spanish mode gets act activated. Whoops. That's okay. Antonio Banderas is awesome. That leads to problem number three. Big Baby is out staring at the moon. We don't get a lot of characterization for Big Baby, but the three major points we get all point to the same thing. Big Baby is quite unhappy. After all, Big Baby wants to have a kid. One kid. Mommy! Remember that? It's actually in a scene that happens after this, but you, you get it. And the idea of Big Baby just off oh, staring into space, you know, staring at the moon forlornly, if I might use the word, gets across that point very efficiently. So then they have to dodge Big Baby. Okay, we did it. We're cool. Um, Spanish Buzz decides to flirt with Jesse and dance for a second. Sure. <laughs> and then we get to the final problem. Lotso. This is when I, I, I was going to talk about Lotso, and I've already said basically everything I need to say there. All we are is trash waiting to be thrown away. God, that says so much. I've seen people say that in real life. Notice throughout his speech, all his various minions get a little bit less cool with what's going on. They all went, ha, 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 we're here to defeat you. Oh, oh, uh, should we, should we go along with this? And there's this wonderful bit where the octopus starts pushing them over the edge, but does so very hesitatingly and with kind of an awkward expression, like, should I be doing this? And it is until they finally ground the point hard and someone overthrows, you know, uh, Lotso, that finally, everyone finally is like, okay, we're, we're, we're going to hands off this one. Ken is also one of the biggest proponents of them, the most vocal proponent. And I like Barbie's line, authority should be derived from the people who support it. Or so. I, I forget, she says it better than I do. I didn't want to write down the whole quote. Rather than from, you know, th threat of force. It's a nice little tidbit. Um, so they get thrown away. Lotso pulls them in because he's evil. The glow-in-the-dark thing, once again, actually shows up and is useful. That just keeps coming up. It's really cool. And the TV falling on Buzz resets him. I, I don't even know why. Uh, this is when the particle thing really goes nuts. This is also when I mentioned who's the most horrible thing. And this is the best scene in the film, in my opinion. I've talked in every single one of these about the, the Pixar tears moment. There's actually two in this film for me. This is the first one. It hits me like a ton of bricks every time I see it. They're in the incinerator. And it, up until now has been all... It's, it's, it's been the, the, the short from the beginning of the film. This is why I brought that up. It's all been just another adventure. And they're rushing through, and they're fighting the bad guys, and they're defeating the enemy, and then, you know, Lotso betrays them because he's a despicable person, as we've already talked about. You know, again, debatably one of the most evil. It, it doesn't even benefit him. That's the best part. It benefits him not at all. God, he just is horrible. Anyways, 
So Lotso is horrible. And this whole time, it's like, oh, God, what do we do? We've got to run. And there's always one last escape, one last plan. Then they're tossed into the actual incinerator. The music changes. The lighting changes. The color tone changes. The voice acting changes. The camera angles suddenly jump in and are very close and tight on people's faces. Everything about the presentation alters for the sequence. When Toy Story 3 was being marketed and the lead-up to it was happening. Several people said, remember, I was part of the movie-going community. Part of the reason I mentioned that was Toy Story 3 was being billed as the end. This was the last Toy Story film. This is funny, since it's not only not, it, the next one isn't either, but let's not get into that. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Point being, that mentality was in my mind, that knowledge was in my mind when I was watching the scene for the first time, and it just sort of st- stunned me, because I realized, they might actually die here. If not in whole, then at least in part. Like, they probably wouldn't kill off Woody and Buzz, but there's a legitimately decent chance they are about to kill off these characters. That added to it a little bit, I'll admit. But even knowing they survive... There's no more speeches. There's no more tricks. There's no more plans. All that happens... You know, what do we do? God, it's getting to be right now. They, they they just grab each other's hands. They just hold each other. And every single one of them realizes and reaches out to the next nearest so they can all be holding one another as best as they're able under these terrible circumstances. And then finally Buzz reaches out that hand to Woody. What happens in those final moments is that they decide to be together, to be a family and they accept it. I don't know how to describe how powerful this scene is for me. It's the acceptance that really pushes it, that last bit for me, pushes it into emotional territory. That they just quietly hold each other as the flames approach. I don't want to get tears on my glasses. I hate tears on my glasses. It, it's when you blink. Like, you know, I just did a big hard blink there, and the, the, the specs just go on. I hate that. I hate that. Pain in the ass to clean up. Imagine if the film had ended like that, by the way. Imagine if they had actually done it. Now, you'd think the film's basically over, right? <laughs> I mean, you'd be mostly right. What's interesting, we can see just how much Woody has grown over the last 11 years. Picture Woody in Toy Story 1. Frankly, juvenile, arrogant, uh, stupid, emotional, and, you know, bumbling in several ways. Contrast that to the Woody in this film. Now, we could say several things about it, but the mere fact that he decides not to pursue revenge on Lotso says all it needs to about the fact that Woody has matured as a person. And then Lotso gets a face worse, fate worse than death. While Hopper was eaten alive, Lotso gets to spend the rest of his life taped to the front of a truck, trying to dodge bugs, and not being able to move, and not being played with. So, enjoy hell! Sid to the rescue, helps them get back. Big goodbye scene happens, the mom starts tearing up, and there's that theme. I told you we'd get back to it. 
it's actually, as usual, it's two themes that are tightly woven into each other. <sighs> Letting go. Moving on. This is the more obvious theme, the one that is stated outright within the course of the film. You know, being at the point where you can let a child leave the house or accept that a loved one has died or, you know, give away a toy to someone else who could appreciate it, to use a direct example. There are many examples of this, and this is something that's shown repeatedly throughout the film. But you can also see how this is tied into the motivations of most of the characters in the film as well, Lotso being the most obvious example. He never did move on. He never let go of that wound. He never, ever accepted it. And because that chapter, that, that door, was just open, he just kept being a horrific, horrible person. And he never stopped. Not even for one second. Given his final line of dialogue where he taunts them as he's escaping, it's pretty clear he never once closed that door. And since he's tied to the front of a garbage truck now, he'll never get the opportunity, so... Yay. This is shown in The Mother. This is shown in Andy. This is shown in Woody. It, it's, it's all throughout the film. And it's a very powerful message. This is, of course, why... why like when she realizes, you know, it's okay and I have to let go and blah, 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 that Woody realizes that there is a better fate than the attic and so he rearranges things so that they, they can be taken to Bonnie. This is <laughs> this is the second Pixar Tears film. Damn it! Ah! <laughs> this is the second one. This one hits me so hard. Like the first scene is better. You know, it's better designed, better presented. It's more emotional. But I, I ball. I think this might be the second hardest cry moment for me in Pixar films. The only one that surpasses this is the beginning of Up. That's that's how high you have to go, no pun intended, in order to surpass this one. This one, even this viewing, I'm just sitting here just like just sobbing, trying to take notes. <laughs> so it's like, I gotta do my job here. Give me a second. I can't pause. I'm on a deadline. Oh my god. He, he shares the toys, and she's so hesitant, of course, because he's a stranger. And it's like, oh, God, here. And he shows off Jesse first because she's awesome, and he talks about Rex like he's big and strong. He talks about the potato heads who madly love each other and how the the, the, the slinky who was always worried about not doing enough or letting go was, was super loyal. And he just does this whole thing, and it's great. And then Woody. And there's even this moment where he's like, no, I can't let go of Woody. But then he realizes... And he comes to accept the same concept, that letting go, the thing he just told his mother. Frankly, if he hadn't just had that conversation with his mother, he probably wouldn't have been able to do this. Goodbyes always suck in their own ways. But I suppose I should mention that second theme. Leaving the nest, parenthood, sure. No. The second theme is acceptance. Life, <sighs> cliche, does go on. Now, whether or not you choose for it to go on or not, that's up to you. That's up to you and your course. But life does actually continue. Goodbye is not the end. And acceptance of that is one of the most powerful themes of this entire film, in my opinion. We see that hinted in the intro video right at the very beginning. And we see that acceptance presented several times throughout as people accept certain aspects of their lives, and accept that things have changed for the worse. Now they've got to move on. 
And you can see why this is so neatly tied into the moving on theme, the, pro the predominant theme, and why this is so relevant. Woody accepts losing Andy. Andy accepts losing Woody. And for all intents and purposes, Andy's father says goodbye. We have a really good uh, post-credits or mid-credits scene or whatever you want to call that. Uh, very, very, very happy. You notice how they turn the daycare into more of a egalitarian situation. There's actually a cool concept here. They rotate people in and out of Caterpillar duty to make sure that nobody gets played with too hard. Nobody has to suffer too much. Nobody gets too far damaged. Because someone does have to do that. Lots of did have a valid point there, after all. And, I mean, those kids deserve toys too, don't they? So you can see the logic. Um, and you'll notice how this whole thing, though, is very, very... And then they lived happily ever after. It is such a definitive ending that I honestly thought there's no way they could do a sequel to this film. Here's the thing, and I said I'd talk about this, and this is the last bit I have to mention. There are precious few works, both television, uh, movie, and game, where there has been a definitive, no really ending to something, and then it has inexplicably continued, and somehow it's worked. Because what you're doing at that point is you're starting in a negative. I've talked about that before. You are down the hill with the boulder, and you need to get back up to here to even get to the starting line, which is where other movies and other games and other shows start, right? You're back down here. Figure it out. <laughs> so they have so much more work to do, and it is so much harder to succeed. I think this is one of the reasons why this is such a rare phenomenon. I personally like Toy Story 4 quite a bit. I've only seen it the one time, in theaters. Not too long ago, actually, because that, that's a lot more recent of a film. With third. But um, we will see what I think of that going back forwards. Either way, if the series had stopped here, that would have been fine. The fact that the series has continued is fine for me since it kept being good. As always, the quality is the key. I hope I have maintained at least some modicum of quality in these. I do hope you have enjoyed. I'll see you next time.